a total blessing for me to stand up here and lead you guys in a study of God's Word this morning. Um, last spring, I had been crying out to the Lord to show me what He wanted to do. Sorry, I get emotional. I don't know if I can do it. Thank you. Anyway, so I um, reached out to Rhonda and just said, hey, I want to be used in Our Lady's ministry. I don't know how God wants to use me, but um, would you pray about it with me? And so um, we prayed about it, and then Rhonda asked me to teach. And so here I am, and I'm just excited and nervous. So um, I'm a willing vessel, so bear with me. This is my very first time, and um, it's only going to get better. I probably won't cry every time. <laughs> but I'm just excited like that God could use me. I've been going to this church for 16 years. And how many of you would be nervous if someone, if you were asked to teach? I mean, yeah, it's scary, but at the same time, I feel like I'm in a new season. Like, I've been poured into and poured into, and I love God's Word, and what a privilege it is to share with you guys just God's Word. That's all it is. It's not about me. It's about Him, and I want to be used by Him however He wants, so I'm excited. Um, Just to let you know, it's been a challenging week leading up to today, so no doubt God wants to do some big things. Um, I do think it's funny, though. Um, this passage that Rhonda gave me, she kind of gave us a list of, okay, you'll teach this week, and boom, 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 then you'll teach this week. She just kind of laid it out, everybody taking a turn. And I'm like, oh, okay. But then when I looked at it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, the wrath of God, that's my turn, okay. And so last night as I was kind of doing some more study, I was looking at a commentary, and it showed what Spurgeon said, just a little quote of this particular paragraph or study that we're doing this morning. He said, this begins a passage where Paul describes the sin and corruption of the pagan world with an amazing directness, so direct that Spurgeon thought this passage unfit for public reading. This first chapter of the epistle, this is his words, to the Romans is a dreadful portion of the word of God. I should hardly like to read it at all, especially aloud. It is not intended to be so used. Read it at home and be startled at the awful vices of the Gentile word. So I just thought it was coming. <laughs> okay, Lord, that's my first teaching. All right, thank you. Oh, my goodness. We can do this, though. God, he's got this. It's his word. It's not me. All right, give me a second here. Sorry. Okay, so last week, Rhonda started us off with the first half of Romans 1. She reminded us of who's writing this letter, who he's writing it to. We were encouraged by Paul's love and concern for us as believers. Sorry. Um, Paul wanted the Romans to be established, he said in Romans 1, verse 11. And I love that word. It means to build up or to bring up in a stable or firm basis. And that's what God wants for our faith. He wants it to be stable and firm, not being tossed to and fro when we navigate the storms of this life. Then in verse 16, we were told that the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And it's on that premise that we will go into this second part of chapter 1, as God's now going to reveal his wrath for the ungodly and the unrighteous. But we do need to remember that God has saved us from this wrath. He doesn't want us to go through it. He sent down his son to die on a cross for us that we might be saved from this wrath. And so all we have to do is believe, and we can be spared that. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to cleanse us from sin if we only choose to believe and walk in that newness of life. No woman in this room is beyond Christ's reach, even if we just sinned this morning. 
Um, Maybe some of us will find, as we read over the verses, that we are guilty of some of these things that Paul's going to talk about. But Christ is bigger than that, and Christ can cleanse us of those things. Um, I would encourage you, I, I don't know everybody's walk in this room, but if you do not have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we invite you to speak with your leader, with Rhonda, or even make an appointment with Pastor Tanner and discuss um, that, because it is a free gift to everyone, and, and that is his goal for us, not that we would suffer the wrath that we're going to study this morning. Um, okay, so the wrath of God, oh, scary. I mean, everybody is like, oh, God is love, God is love. But the wrath that we're going to talk about is also a real part of God. And I picked up this little book at a retreat last week, and it's called Grace and Truth by Oswald Chambers. And the very first opening, he talks about grace and truth and how they're kind of hard to reconcile. So I thought it was a great opening before we get right into the wrath of God. <clears throat> John 1.17 tells us, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Sorry, Grace and truth are difficult to reconcile. The two concepts seem contradictory. Truth seems harsh. Grace seems soft. Truth seems rigid. Grace seems flexible. Grace seems like an exception to truth. The way of grace seems like a detour around truth. According to Chambers, grace is the overflowing nature of God. As evidence, he points to creation. When we observe nature, he says, we have no words to describe the lavishness of God. Nature proves that God is gracious to everyone, not an elite few. And truth, Chambers says, means more than accuracy. It means accuracy about something that corresponds with God. Grace is not an exception to truth, but a holy expression of truth. Grace is true because it accurately describes God's interaction with us. Therefore, grace is a true expression of God's character. And truth is grace because it applies to all and is available to everyone. Instead of being arc rivals, grace and truth are intimate companions. They travel together, wooing and winning people to live in the safe shelter of a loving Heavenly Father. In Christ, grace and truth are reconciled, which means that we can be both gracious and truthful. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who became the Father, full of grace. Let's pray as we get into God's word together. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to come and share your word with these sweet ladies. Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me. Um, help me to be open to however you want to speak, Father God. And I just thank you for the time you've given me to study deeper in your word this week, Lord. And I just pray these words would fall afresh on us and you would use them to minister to us and to teach us and grow us, Heavenly Father. So I just want to commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Romans 1.18, Paul could have used the words, hear ye, hear ye, court is in session, as we enter into this point in scripture. The theme of Romans is righteousness of God, but Paul had to begin with the unrighteousness of humankind, because until a person knows that we are wretched and we are unrighteous, we cannot appreciate the gracious salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. We start out with Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let's remember that God's wrath is not like our wrath. That's just an emotional outburst. That's that's not who God is. 
but rather it's a demonstration of justice and justified anger over anything that is contrary to his standards and his character. Any judgment or punishment that results from God's wrath against sin is actually an expression of his holiness and righteousness. Um, The verse continues, uh, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, Ungodliness is sin against God and unrighteousness is sin against man. When we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, it means we choose to go our own way regardless of what we know to be the truth. Sometimes when I share my testimony, I feel like the Lord wanted me to say this. Um, I share my testimony. I was baptized and saved as a teenager, but as a young adult and young teen, I didn't really know how to walk in that truth. You know, I made some really bad choices and... um, A lot of times when I share my testimony, I say, oh, it's because I wasn't discipled. I didn't know how to live. But as I was just thinking about teaching what God would have me share, I feel like he wanted me to share that that's a cop-out, like that I wasn't discipled. How many of us, you know, say that? And are oh, I'm not discipled. I don't know how to walk the walk. Our church needs discipleship. Discipleship is great. But what he shared with me was Paul is discipling us. His word is discipling us. His word is enough. We read these words today and we take them to heart. His word was there for me. I just chose to live in unrighteousness. I just chose to suppress the truth. And God showed that to me as I was studying this. So hopefully he's showing you some things too. And I love that our study asks us to go deep and asks us, what is God showing you? And that's what he was showing me is, that's a crock. My word is enough. I am I am able to disciple you. So I encourage you, ladies. Get in God's word. Get deep. Ask him to disciple you. Ask him to chip away those things that are not of him. And we're going to look at some of those things today. Okay. Romans 1, 19 and 20. It says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When I was young, I was raised by my grandmother, and she taught me how to sew, which I'm so thankful. But one thing I struggle with is sewing a straight line. Like, I just can't. It's really hard. Like, I've learned how to have a guide now and, like, tape a credit card to help me guide. But it's really hard for me to sew a straight line. And So a few years back, some friends of mine invited me to become part of a quilting group, and I thought, oh, yay, friendship, and... I can quilt, and I'll learn a new skill, and it'll be great. But what it really showed me was that I couldn't make a straight line. If you can't make a straight line, you're not going to be very good at quilting. So I fumbled my way through, and I expressed my frustration. And one of my sweet friends shared with me, you know, in some Amish communities, they actually purposely make mistakes because it's a way of showing we are human. Like, we make mistakes. We're not perfect. Only God is perfect. And so as they shared that, it was really freeing. It was really freeing, like, okay. I don't have to be perfect. My quilt's going to be what it's going to be, and it's still lovely as it hangs. You know, I'm not looking really deeply and closely at it, and hopefully no one else is either. But it also made me realize that the closer we look at man's work, the more we're going to see those mistakes because we are imperfect. But the more we look at God's work, the more we see perfection. I mean, everything he makes is without mistake. From every detail of living organisms, we see the systems that are designed to work together. Think about the intricacies of our bodies, our cells, the solar system, everything being held together. I remember Pastor Jeff teaching that if we were to take apart the pieces of a watch, 
ponder its workings and intricacies and how it works, we would know that that wasn't just random little pieces that came together and formed a watch. We would realize that there is a creator that put that together. And we are without excuse to not see that in creation. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the, the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. <clears throat> so he, those invisible things from the creation of the world, they're clearly seen and understood. We are without excuse to think that this just all ha- happened by random chance. Um, as we continue in Romans 121, we're going to now start to see the downward spiral. Romans 121, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. The problem is not that man did not know God, but that they did know him, but didn't glorify him. If we use our Bibles as our history book, we can see that mankind did not start out worshiping idols. They started out walking with God hand in hand in the garden. They knew God intimately. But since the time of Eve and that bite of the apple, we have begun walking down the road of making ourselves our own God. We put our own desires above the desires of God in our lives. We have exchanged the truth of God for the lies of Satan. And now in our school systems and even in greater society, we are force-fed the lie that it's all about us. Constantly, it's all about us. Mankind has become so smart in our educational systems that we've become stupid. We've chosen to bring glory to ourselves instead of God. Um, I have another quote from Spurgeon in here. It says, but when you glorify God as God and are thankful for everything, when you can take a bit of bread and a cup of water and say with the poor Puritan, what, all this in Christ too? Then you are happy and you make others happy. A godly preacher, finding that all there was for dinner was a potato and a herring, thanked God that he had ransacked the sea in love to find food for his children. Such a sweet spirit breeds love to everybody and makes a man go through the world cheerfully. God wants us to be thankful. That's what it's saying in this word. And here it's saying, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although we know God, we fail to glorify him when we stop being thankful for whatever he sends into our lives. The verse says they became futile, meaning incapable of producing anything useful. Like when you can't see the point of even trying. Pointless. The sense that no matter how much you work at it, nothing good will happen, so we might as well give up. Has anyone ever felt like that? Anyone ever do you like feeling like that? That's not God's plan for us but rather that's the result of us putting ourselves on the throne. Romans 1.22, they were professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The ways that seem right and wise to most people in the world are typically just the opposite of what God says. Um, Still, those who oppose God are often so arrogant in their views that they even refuse to consider the truth because they've not surrendered to the authority of God. They are blinded. As a result, their views of good and evil and right and wrong are not in line with what God says is good and evil and right and wrong. And ironically, sometimes it's the most educated of people that have these views that just refuse to see the truth of God. One day God's right judgment will be brought forth and the ignorance will cost them dearly. 
Throughout history, every culture has had an innate need to worship, but suppressing the truth of God, they substitute gods with other gods like Ra, the sun god, or maybe maybe it's the eagle that they worship. And if you think our culture is an exception, let's think about the things our culture worships. Sometimes it's the environment. Sometimes there's those people that love the environment so much that it's the cost of humanity. They, you know, get paid to live in a tree so that we don't build homes where the tree lives or we make a little fish more important than water that needs to feed the farmlands of California. Have you guys ever driven up California and seen all those farms dead because they won't let the water out to water them because there's a fish that lives somewhere among the irrigation systems? And and it's sad. It's heartbreaking. So we suffer as humans by not getting that good food that God's given us. And it's just putting things in wrong perspective. Even in our own community, we've got, you know, Santa's Village that wants to open, and then there's these environmental issues and, excuse me, sorry guys, (laughs) we'll get through this. And it's not to say that, you know, we shouldn't care about the environment that God's given us, but we need to keep it in perspective. I mean, his main love is for us, for people, that we glorify him. That's his big plan, and we lose sight of that perspective. Um, how about the way we worship um, sports? We um, we paint our bodies. We wear silly costumes. We stand up and yell. We can live or die, you know, over the soccer game or football or whatever's going on. I don't even know. But, I mean, sometimes we just put the craziest things as the most important things in our life. How about our youngest generation now? I think it takes a great deal of self-control to not be completely sucked up into the narcissistic activities of the selfie life. I mean, I found out recently that you can even pay to get likes on your, whatever, Instagram or something. Yeah, I mean, why why would, but it makes you seem popular if you get a whole bunch of likes. So you can actually pay money, and then you'll get, like, instant likes, and then your friends will think that you're popular. And it's just this crazy culture of, Children wanting to feel valued when their true value is in who they are in Christ. You know, it's not a matter of likes, but that's where we've gone as a culture. Verses 124-25, Therefore God also gave them up. He gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The term God gave them over, that's scary to me. It means that God allowed them to completely go their own way, experiencing the full effects of their shameful lusts and sinful desires. Such behavior, after it's run its full course, will bring often bring harsh consequences and becomes its own form of judgment. Verse 25 tells us they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. The lie started with Satan telling Eve she could be like God, and all of other, all Satan's other lies stem from that first lie. To believe that lie is to reject the truth of God, even putting ourselves in that place. Anybody here believe that they have a better grip on this life than God does? No. But we put ourselves in that place when we don't put him first in our lives. We put ourselves on the throne that God should be on, in essence, making ourselves the God of our own lives. Idolatry involves worshiping false gods or giving priority to anyone or anything over the one true God. 
We are guilty of this when we set our affections on the wrong things and depend on anything over the one true God for our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment. Our natural tendency is to put our own desires and authority over God, and I believe that's why the Bible points us to the problem of pride over and over. Verse 126 and 27, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. (coughs) Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. In these scriptures, God is saying that homosexual and lesbian behavior is not what he intended when he designed us. But let's be clear that sexual behavior of any kind outside of God's plan of marriage, one man, one woman, is against God's will. He warns us over and over in scripture that fornication, adultery, pornography, along with all of these aforementioned activities are outside of his will for us. Ephesians 5.3 tells us, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Galatians 5.19, we're just going to look at the intro right now, tells us, The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication. We'll look at a few more in just a minute. This verse also tells us that they're going to receive the penalty of their error. The wrong choices that we make often bring difficult consequences with them. However, I believe that God can use those difficult consequences to draw us to him, to let us know, wow, that's the wrong way to go. Maybe God was right. To let us see our need for a savior when we walk in the flesh. Um... But yet, in today's society, we've tried to make ways for us to not face those consequences. We hand out birth control to young girls and think, well, if they don't get pregnant, then they won't face those consequences. And yet, they still face the sadness and the consequences that those behaviors bring. They carry the guilt and the shame into their marriages. We hand out condoms so that maybe we won't have to have sexually transmitted diseases as a result of our sin but yet the sin still carries its penalty. We need to sometimes just allow those consequences in our lives so that we can be drawn closer to God and his ways. The ramifications of having sex at such a young age are so much more than getting pregnant or contracting a disease. Um, How about abortion? That's another way that we have made ourselves God and said, oh, no, we can fix this. Let's just call it choice. It's not choice. It's not choice for the baby. It's choice for us to not face the consequences of the choices that we've made. And I don't want to cause condemnation on anyone. I've been guilty of some of these things. Christ's love and sacrifice is sufficient to cover all of it if we simply ask, but he does not want us to continue in these behaviors. And I think that's what we're going to learn in these verses. One twenty-eight, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. That's scary to me. Three times now he's told us God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Here Paul is once again, he's speaking to those who do not know God. They did not want to retain God in their knowledge. 
He's speaking to unbelievers. And if Paul is speaking to unbelievers about these issues, then we as believers should not be participating in these activities. Um, He's speaking about people who do not like to retain God in their knowledge, how far we have come from actual knowledge in this world. Psalms 1-7 tells us, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. When this country began... The number one source of teaching English was the King James Bible. Then the Bible was the source for other textbooks that were created, like this cute little book here called the New England Primer. I mean, this is what our country was founded on, and this is what the children were taught so long ago. Um, This is just the different letters of the alphabet. Um, A wise son maketh a father glad, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. That's for letter A. B, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. I mean, this is what our children were raised on so many years ago, but now God is not even allowed in our schools anymore. Today we've kicked him out, and I find this scary, because this verse tells us that because of this, God gave them over to a debased mind. Debased means having or showing lowered moral character or standards unscrupulous, contaminated, immoral, wicked. Anybody see any of that in our culture as a result of these choices? Now as we begin verse 29, we're going to go over a list that begins with unrighteousness, and that means that which is against God. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, gossipers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, I also want to look at Galatians 5, 19 through 21 real quick. Let me turn there. Because there are plenty of lists in the Bible outlining sin that is not pleasing to God. We're going to look at one more, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, Sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in the past time, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Based on just these two lists, I don't think there's a person in this room that can say, I don't struggle with anything. How about envy? Anybody struggle with envy? I know just this morning I was like, what are some of those things? I, I, I'm envious of people that have garages. I'm envious of people that have straight hair so I don't have to spend time dealing with this, these waves. Uh, you know, I'm jealous sometimes. Oh, two, two income families. Wouldn't that be nice to have vacations and travel? But that's not for me. But it's really easy to get lost in envy. That's just one that I personally struggle with. How about dissension or outbursts of wrath? Driving down the 330, when that slow person's in front of you, it takes self-control to not have those outbursts of wrath. Um, the point 
that is important is that we don't practice them. And let's, <clears throat> sorry, define practice. That means to carry out or perform habitually or regularly and being okay about it. There's a difference between an occasional slip-up that the Holy Spirit checks us for and the outright desire to live our own life in our own authority. That difference comes from being saved. Being truly saved, the Holy Spirit living in us to help us to navigate these fleshly desires, to help us have control and offer us that way out. Verse 32 finishes up, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In this last verse, Paul's telling us that it's not only those who practice these things, but also those who approve of those who practice them. We have to be very careful to draw the line between loving our friends and family that are unsaved and approving of the things that they're doing that we know are unpleasing to the Lord. Um, in this verse, we're learning that we are deserving of death when we approve of those things. I can't be the only one in the room who's got a family member that they've had to have those hard talks with. I know there's a special person in my life that will tell me, oh, God just wants me to be happy. And I've had to say in love, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God wants you to be happy, sweetie. I mean, I love you. He loves you, but that's not from God. Or, you know, pray. will you please pray for me that God would allow this? And I've had to say, I can't pray that. God won't hear that. That is outside of God's will for you. Doesn't mean I don't love her, but I can't say that's not loving. That's not loving to not point her, my person, thank you, Julie, to the truth of God. And so I think that's what this verse is telling us, that we can be just as guilty if we're telling people, oh, that's okay, yeah, you're right, just be happy. That's not what we are to do as sisters in Christ and sisters of friends. We need to, we need to not judge them. I mean, I believe Rhonda's going to speak on that coming up soon. It's not our place to judge, but it is our place when we know God's word to share. You're not walking where God wants you to walk. He's not going to bless that walk. And that's important that we do that. They're not easy conversations to have, um, but it means we have to do that. It means we have to do that. Does it mean we don't love them or that God doesn't love them? No. But to agree with that sin that may lead them to death is not loving them. Um, these are some tough verses to swallow. God's wrath is not something that I want to imagine for myself or for anyone. I will share with you that my husband loves to watch scary movies sometimes, and one of them, it's maybe not scary to you guys, but it's scary to me, Lord of the Rings, one of the very last ones, there's like a lot of big monsters, and it's just really scary. I honestly couldn't watch it, because I thought to myself, if this is what man can imagine, like, as scary, what's it going to be really like when God takes his hand off this earth, and there are people here suffering the wrath? Like, I can't watch that movie without thinking... That's coming. That's coming. And I don't want anyone I know or love to be in that. So we need to uh, make the choice. We need to make the choice to live in God's will, to love under Christ's sacrifice, to put him as the Lord of our life and on the throne so that we are making decisions that are pleasing to him. Um, I clo chose a closing song, but... I also was reading something in Spurgeon the other day, and it was just really great. It spoke to me, and I think he wanted me to share it as we wrap up this verse. So um, 
I think we all need to see ourselves as the sinners that we are. I think it's really easy for us to say, well, I'm not a murderer, or I'm not an adulterer, or I'm not whatever. But when we have Christ as our role model, none of us can match that. None of us are clean outside of his righteousness over us. And so I'm just going to read this so you can just listen, and then we're going to go into a closing song. Okay? This was actually in a morning and evening by Charles Spurgeon. I love it. Spurgeon was a great um, biblical scholar and um, theologian and preacher in the 1800s. He starts us with Leviticus 13.13. Behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. This regulation appears to be strange, yet there's wisdom in it, for the throwing out of the disease proved that the constitution was sound. This morning it may be well for us to see the typical teaching of so unusual a rule. We too are lepers and may read the law of lepers as applicable to ourselves. When a man sees himself to be, or woman, when a woman sees herself to be altogether lost and ruined, covered all over with the defilement of sin, with no part free from the pollution, when she disclaims all righteousness of her own and pleads guilty before the Lord, Then is she made clean through the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. Hidden, unfelt, unconfessed iniquity is the true leprosy. But when sin is seen and felt, it has received its death blow, and the Lord looks with eyes of mercy on the soul afflicted with it. Nothing is more deadly than self-righteousness or more hopeful than contrition. We must confess that we are nothing else but sin, for no no confession short of this will be the whole truth. If the Holy Spirit is at work within us, convincing us of sin, there will be no difficulty about making such an acknowledgement. It will spring spontaneously from our lips. What a comfort the scripture affords to those under a deep sense of sin. Sin that is mourned and confessed, however black and foul, will never shut a man out from the Lord Jesus. Whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. John 6:37. Though dishonest as the thief, though unchaste as the woman who was a sinner, though fierce as Saul of Tarsus, though cruel as Manasseh, though rebellious as the prodigal, the great heart of love will look on the woman who feels herself to have no soundness in herself and will pronounce her clean when she trusts in Jesus crucified. Come to him then, poor heavy laden sinner. That's all I have for you today.